Oh, so good to have you this morning, and I'm excited about continuing this December sermon series called Don't Miss It. So the idea behind the series um, is that I feel like there needs to be more intentionality in our Christmas holiday celebrations. And I think that even we as believers, followers of Christ who understand, I think, the significance of this time of year. We get wrapped up in the commercialism and the shopping and everything else like that and all of the commitments that we have. And so I wanted to kind of intentionally take some time and create more purpose behind what we do this Christmas season. Last week we talked about um, uh, don't miss the moments that matter. And I really think the only thing you remembered was that you don't have to send out Christmas cards. Like there was, you understand, there was like a 35-minute message last week. That was only like 60 seconds of it. But that's what everybody remembered was that I don't send out Christmas cards anymore. But that's okay. At least you got something out of the message last week. So this week we're going to talk about, last week was the, the moments that matter, and this is the people in the story. And I think what I'd love to do is carry us through some of the notable figures characters in the story of the birth of Christ and learn some things that maybe we didn't know before and maybe learn some ways to apply what all happened and learn more about our God. So that's kind of where we're going with all of this. But the greatest event since the creation of the world was the birth of Christ. And here's the thing. It involved a young girl, her fiance, and some blue-collar shepherds. I don't know if the collars are really blue, but you understand where I'm going with that. If God, so here's the thing, and this is the question that I've been struggling with. If God wasn't going to use royalty to introduce his son, if he wasn't going to use the religious leaders or the important people of the day, why use people at all? Like, why would he make the decision to involve people at all in the birth of his son, and, and, or, or the son coming to earth. He didn't have to even use a birth. He could have made it a much more magnificent event. And so here's what I came up with, that God wants to include people in his redemptive plan. And that's the task that we are given today, that, that not only are we supposed to be Christ followers, we are supposed to be actively participating with God in redeeming this world and, and reestablishing that relationship. So with that in mind, I'd love to take a look at Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and kind of learn some new things about them perhaps or be reminded and then just some interesting takes on what we can learn through all of this. So the first person we'd like to address here is Mary, and uh, we've identified her as a gracious girl, and that was intentional because I, we're going to take a look at, at some expressions of God's attitude towards her. And if you have your Bibles, we can turn to the first chapter of Luke, which is the third book in the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were four Gospels written by different people that tried to tell the story of Jesus' life on earth. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell very similar stories 
cover the same time period, but have a different take. And actually, Matthew and Luke are the only two that address the birth of Christ in any detail. And we'll kind of bounce between those two books this morning. But you have the Old Testament, and then you have the New Testament. And this is the first four books in the New Testament of the Gospels. And this is the third book, Luke chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll have it for you up on the screen. But also you could use maybe a phone app that you might have downloaded, some uh, Bible apps to to be able to do your own study or reading. Um, So anyway, so Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 say this. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Now let's just kind of hit the pause button here. We'll continue reading in just a moment. But but just some really interesting information I hear. Um, girls were usually engaged at this time period at the ages of 12 or 13. And they would be married at the end of a one-year betrothal period. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, that a 12- or 13-year-old girl, now, now this will blow your mind even more, she didn't get to pick. The betrothal was arranged by the parents. And some of you are saying, thank the Lord for the 21st century. 12 to 13-year-old girl. That means by the time she was married, at the most, she was probably about 14 years of age. Now, the betrothal was much stronger than our um, engagement is today. Because the betrothal period, during that time, only death or divorce could sever the contract. In fact, if the betrothed male died The female was considered a widow. That's how strong this betrothal period was. In fact, they were often referred to as husband and wife during the betrothal period. After the year was up, they would have a seven-day wedding feast and then begin their life as newlyweds. So with that information... Let's read a few verses here in the book of Luke chapter 1. I don't have all these up on the screen. You're going to have to take my word for it that I'm reading the Bible. Or look on your own book. In Luke 1 verses 28, we're going to read, oh, I don't know, 6, 7, 8, I'm here. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored. We're going to get back to that in just a minute. The Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. And cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. There it is again. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great. And shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. (laughs) Then Mary said. How shall this be? Seeing I know not a man. Like it's not adding up. And the angel answered and said unto her. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, 
also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. What an overwhelming visit. Now, I want to kind of zone in on that word favored just a little bit. It's very interesting. It only appears one other time in Scripture. And that is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And he says this, hang on, I marked it. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein, and here's the word, he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Made us accepted is the same Greek word as highly favored. So what it tells me is that God chose Mary not necessarily because of Mary, but so that God could show himself great, just like we didn't do anything to deserve God's goodness to us, right? It's, it's all about how much he's loved us. And I think that that's a beautiful thing to think that God would do this for us. So here you have Mary just being very honest, right? She only knew of one way that she could conceive a son. Are you tracking? She only knew of one way that she could become pregnant. And she knew that she had not done anything to make that happen. As indicated by her question, how can this be since I am a virgin? So the concept of a pregnant virgin was unconceivable. You see my little play on words there. Some of you would appreciate my humor. Some of you still don't get it. But it was a, an impossibility, right? It was a contradiction in terms, like a, like a married bachelor. It, a pregnant virgin made no sense to her. But look at her incredible response in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. What a simple, beautiful response to the Lord. In other words, she's saying, Let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whatever you want, God. Whatever you want to make in my life. Not a what if. Not a, not, let me just be honest with you. This is what I would have done. Number one, I'm hoping that I would never be asked to become pregnant. But if I had been in her shoes, I think that I would have said, can we just wait until I get married? God, maybe you don't understand the embarrassment I'm going to go through. And the shame I'm going to feel. If it's all the same to you, can we put this off six months? I promise that Joseph and I won't do anything that will cause any problems or complicate your plan. But if we could just wait until... No. She didn't try and negotiate with God. She didn't try and make it less disruptive. She simply said... All right, let it be done according to your word. And then we're introduced to Joseph. 
And we learn that he was a just man. Now, let me just be honest with you. We don't know a lot about Joseph. But we know he was a just man. We know he was a carpenter by trade. We know that he taught that trade to Jesus. Interestingly, the last time we hear of Joseph is when Jesus was 12 years old. You might remember what happened. They take Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem and they forget about him. They leave him there and they depart and they are a few days away and they realize we don't have Jesus. So they go back and that's the last time we hear of Joseph. So, you know, we should be silent where the Bible is silent, right? But... There's a lot of conjecture out there as to what, what happened to Joseph and, and, and maybe he was an older man when he married Mary. We don't know. We do know that he had um, four sons and two daughters. But we also know that the, the last time we saw him was when Jesus was 12. He didn't show up at the marriage of Cana of Galilee, which was the first miracle. We meet his mother there. We also know that we, he's not mentioned during any of the ministry of Christ, and we know that he wasn't at the crucifixion, to our knowledge. So it seems like he was not there. And there's all kinds of really interesting theories out there. But they're just all theories, because the Bible doesn't really specify. But it sure is fun to talk about. So maybe he died an early death. So Jesus appears to Matthew in, uh, I'm sorry, to, <laughs> to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. In verses 18 and 19, it says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, that betrothal period that we talked about, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now that was a disaster. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man. Now, what that means is that he was a follower of the law. He knew what the law was. And not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily or privately. I mean, this woman that he had so much respect for that he was going to marry is now pregnant. And by law, she could be put to death. So what he decided to do instead was to put her away privately. In other words, he was just going to divorce her, give her, write a divorce and and let her be on her way because that would cause the least amount of embarrassment and obviously is a lot better than being stoned to death. But then check out verse 20. How good is God? Watch this. But while he thought on these things, how good is God's timing? Like he's going through this in the market. Now what should be the, what should that, he's so troubled. What's the right course of action here? He hears that she's pregnant. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream saying, Joseph, and then God reminds him who he is, thou son of David. And, the, and everybody knew that Jesus was going to come from the lineage of David. Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Two things the angel told him right there. The child is conceived by the Holy Ghost, and the child is going to be the Son of God. Two pretty heavy revelations there. 
And then we see what he did, what, what, what his response was in verses 24 and 25. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. In that time of confusion, Joseph simply obeyed and put his trust in the word of the Lord. What an incredible response. And then the third group we're going to talk about, and, and these guys are enjoyable, and that's the shepherds. And again, so, so it's a, they're an unlikely crowd. You would think if God was going to announce the birth of his son to somebody, it would, would have been the religious leaders, right? But they don't have a clue. They're in the dark. Or maybe royalty. No, nope, he didn't know either, Right? So the angels come to announce the birth of our Savior to shepherds. Most shepherds were hirelings. In other words, they were hired and paid just to watch the sheep. Most, not all, but most of the shepherds that we read about were hirelings. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8, here's the event that we're talking about. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds did not have the greatest reputation. Now, there's nothing in Scripture that specifically says these shepherds were not good men, but they come from a despised class of people. Most were dishonest or thieving. Okay, so much so, they were not allowed to be used as witnesses in court. If it kind of gives you an idea of what people thought of them. They could not hold any type of judicial office. They would be gone for months on time, just taking the flocks from field to field, mountainside to mountainside. I'm not a shepherd. I don't know what they do. They were just gone for a long time. And it was assumed that while they were away, they were taking some of the flock, like as kids were born or whatever, they would kind of take them and they would do what they want to with them. And so it was kind of like this known thing that if you were an honest individual in Israel at the time, you didn't buy wool or a kid or any product from a shepherd because it's, they just assumed that it was stolen. So you understand who we're talking about. They're an unlikely crowd for God to give this incredible announcement to. So in verses 15 and 16, we see their response to this incredible announcement. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Of course, then we know that they took that news and went out and they made known abroad what they had seen and they published the word. So here's what we're going to try and do. We're going to try and learn a couple things from these characters and then we're going to try and learn a couple things about our God through this story. So what are some things that we can learn from these characters? First of all, I love this. They were incredibly ordinary. I don't know what your upbringing is what you've thought about Mary or Joseph. But they were incredibly ordinary people. And I'm not saying that what happened in their lives was not incredible or that their responses were not grace-filled acts of obedience. 
But what I am saying is that if it had not been for God doing what he did and choosing who he chose, we would likely have never heard about them. So it wasn't like they were so extraordinary that God chose them. They were extraordinary because they simply obeyed the word of the Lord. Here's the truth. God did not choose them to highlight their worthiness. No, God chose them to display his godness. And I know that's not a word. But you know what I mean. So it's not like Mary was so extraordinary. Now she was, obviously, there's a reason God chose her. I'm not saying she was not a great gal. But if God had never done what God did, we never would have known about her. And let's not get so hung up on Mary and Joseph that we shed more light on them than we do the God that performed the miracle. God didn't choose them so that we would highlight, so that we would just, for the rest of our lives, worship them. God chose them to display his godness. They were all incredibly ordinary people. Not only that, they were all scared. Every single one of them, we see the command, fear not. Fear not. Fear not. They were just like you and I in a lot of ways. And what happened to them was scary and embarrassing and absolutely out of the ordinary. We should not be surprised if the path of obedience and following God gets a little scary sometimes. That's what faith is all about. Can there, this is just a thought-provoking question, can there be faith without fear? Think about it. So like, If I don't have any fear, then how much faith is involved in that? If I don't have the faith to obey what God is commanding me to do, if if that doesn't scare me a little bit, is faith even involved? I'm not trying to create a theological discussion. I'm just saying it, it, is, it is worth considering that, that if, if we're not a little scared about what God asks us to do, then maybe we're not growing in our faith is what I'm saying. I know you don't remember it, but there was a time in your life when walking was a big deal. Okay, for some of you, it's gone back to that. Like <laughs> you've kind of gone over that hill and now it's a great deal. Um, but like when you, were, when you were first learning how to walk, I mean, the parents are more scared than the kids were. But I think it's because they don't have very far to fall. Like we're talking like six inches between their butt and the ground. So it's not like it's, not like it's a major catastrophe if they, if they tumble, right? But like when they're first learning how to take that step, hey, we videotaped it. That's how big a deal it was. That's when camcorders were as large as a briefcase. They had padding on the bottom for you to hold it on your shoulder. And that used a VH 
VHS cassette tape that big. And we're videotaping. And it was so obnoxious to carry that around with your own family vacation. Like your life was that important that you have to have like a news camera cover the events. But we videotaped the first steps, right? And so, so it's like, you know, they take that first step and then this, this moment from here to here is uncertainty. And for us, that produces a lot of fear. And if there is no fear, is there really faith? Because here's the thing, faith outweighs fear. And so you're making that decision, do I give in to my fear and disobey God, or do I express my faith by obedience and overcome the fear that I have? I think, so here, here's what I'm saying. I think fear is part of our faith journey. And as we, and as we take that step and there's some fear and we take it, oh, it worked. God did what he said he would do. Then we take another step, and it's part of our faith journey. It's fear and then faith and then fear and then faith. And if there hasn't been anything that has stretched you lately, maybe it's because we've just stopped walking in faith. There needs to be something that challenges you and scares you a little bit. They were all scared. They were all incredibly ordinary. They were, they were all scared. But here's the thing. They all said yes to God. And that's incredible. Mary said to God, do with me whatever you want. Joseph went ahead and married the pregnant lady. And the shepherds came with haste and then made known the saying which was told them. I mean, how else do you respond to God? Well, let me just ask you this. Is there a more appropriate response to the God of this universe than yes. No. There's not. That confuses me. The only appropriate response is yes. And that's not saying we don't say no. We won't take the time to look it up. You might want to jot down Psalm 78, verse 41. It's relaying the journeys of the people of Israel. And and, and this damning verse says this, Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. What? Their refusal to obey God limited the Holy One of Israel. Psalm 78, verse 41. So, We can respond differently. There just is no other appropriate response than yes. So what does this teach us about God? Very quickly here. First of all, God has no problem interrupting my life. (laughs) God has no problem throwing me a curveball, interrupting my life. By the way, when was the last time your life was interrupted by God? Wait, what? You want, yeah, but... When was the last time your life was interrupted by God? God has no problem doing that. God, I want you to use me. I want you to do great things through me. I want to affect your kingdom. Okay, you pray that, and there's going to be some interruptions. Your life is not going to go the way you have planned. God has no problem interrupting my life. 
Not only that, God is not limited in who he can use. I love this. Abraham was old. Elijah was suicidal. Joseph was abused. Job went bankrupt. Moses had a speech problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. The Samaritan woman was divorced multiple times. Noah was a drunk. Jeremiah was young. Jacob was a cheater. David was a murderer. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Peter denied Christ three times. Martha worried about everything. Zacchaeus was small and money hungry. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Hello. Paul was a Pharisee who persecuted Christians before he came one, before he became one. God is not limited in who he can use. In this story alone, we see a virgin giving birth to the Son of God. We see a barren woman becoming pregnant and giving birth to John the Baptist. God's not limited. God has no problem interrupting my life. God's not limited in who he can use. And this is a powerful statement. God's God blesses according to his own purposes, not my goodness. And this is what we're walking away with today. I know it's hard to hear, but brace yourself. It's not all about you. Okay? It's not all about you. We are part of God's story. He's not a part of ours. We are a part of what God is doing. So many of us treat God like a genie in a lamp. We only pull him down when we need him, and we rub it and try and get him to do things for us to straighten out the mess that we've created. No, we are part of a bigger story than who we are. And we are a part of this incredible story God is telling, not the other way around. And as I said in the beginning, we are a part of his plan to redeem people. We partner with him to bring people into relationship with him over again. And whatever's going on in your life, whatever step of faith you have to take, keep in mind the fact that, that we are partnering with God to help redeem this creation. And whatever that needs to look like. And as we walk in faith and as there's some fear there, let's just say yes to the Lord and trust in his word, whatever it might be. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And thank you for just using ordinary people because that paves the way for us to be used of God. And help us to partner with you and the Holy Spirit to affect the lives around us. Help us to intentionally celebrate this Christmas season by looking for ways for us to be used of God. I truly believe that you want to do something great and help us to be willing to be the instruments of what you'd like to do in Jesus' name. Amen.